a question I'm asked all the time as a pastor is, what are your favorite verses in the Bible? I, I do have more than one. I, I start off by saying my, my favorite verse in the Old Testament comes from Hosea 11. Do you know the story of Hosea? Hosea was, was a fire and brimstone preacher in ancient Israel. He preached judgment and he preached punishment. And you better turn around or you're going to be in some serious trouble. And then, then he fell in love with a woman. She kind of had a wild reputation, but they fell passionately in love with each other, had three children. Hosea continued to preach the way he was, but then all of a sudden his wife, well, she went back to her old lifestyle. She went back to getting in trouble, and she broke their marriage vows, and Hosea discovered something. He was still madly, deeply, passionately in love with her, and he wanted her back. And in that, in that discovery, he realized the same thing is true of God and us, of God and, and his audience, who then was Israel. Even though Israel had wandered away from God, even though they had forgotten all the things that, that God had taught them over the centuries, Hosea had a vision and spoke to the people and said for God, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? You're my child, my little one. I led you by the hand out of Egypt. It's a powerful story of grace and forgiveness and mercy, of God's unconditional love in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Next, I then go to 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it before. You've heard it so many times, it's almost cliche. Love is patient, love is kind, but that's not the part that comes to mind for me. No, it's those three words in the middle of the text. Love, and put an underline on the second word, never fails. Love never fails fails. The next time you're at a wedding and you hear somebody getting up to read that, those words, pay attention when it gets to that, that point in the reading because that is the singular word Paul wanted us to hear. Love never fails. And then First John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Those who love know God. Those who do not love, hear this word, hear this. Those who do not love do not know God, for God is love. There's not a word in there about theology. There's not a word in there about the proper practice or the appropriate worship style, anything like that. If you love, you know God. If you don't, you don't know God, period. You can see the universal theme that's, that's woven through my three favorite texts. Really, that's the story of Genesis to Revelation, of God's undying, unconditional love. At the end of all ends, at the end of you and me and the end of all that we see, the one thing that will be remaining, the one thing that will move us into the resurrection will be the love you've received and the love you've given. But my favorite verse in the whole Bible was read by Carla a moment ago. It's the words of that father who in desperation for his little boy, his son, his beloved child, he's fallen on his face. At least that's the way I see the story. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's the voice of desperation. It's the voice of desire. It's the voice of worry and fear and anger and frustration and all the rest. It's the words of a, of a father whose son is attacked every day by epileptic fits. So the, old, the old ancients saw it as a, as a demonic possession. And in fact, most of antiquity in, in the Mediterranean especially would have seen that kind of an illness as something that a demon had brought to them. We, we need to be careful and just understand that was the, 
the context in which, they, in which they found themselves. And miracles happened all the time too, not just with Jesus, but with other miracle workers who were uh, well known in his day. But none of that really is the point. What we see instead is a desperate father who's run out of options. He's fallen before Jesus. Lord, Lord, if you're able. Do you hear the mix of faith and doubt? If you're able. And then Jesus responds in a kind of a strange way. I like the way that Carla read it because it's, it's implies that Jesus is sort of irritated. If you're able, what are you, do you realize who you're talking to? I'm Jesus the Christ. Come on. This is, I'm going to be the one. It's, there's a little bit of arrogance there. I don't know. Maybe you don't like thinking about Jesus that way, but I hear it in the text. If you're able, if I'd been there, I would have challenged Jesus and say, look at this father. He's desperate. He's on his knees. He wants his son to be healed. Be, be kind. Be gracious. Be gentle. Be pastoral. But thank God I wasn't there because that's not what that father needed. That father needed the Christ, the Messiah. Because the father responds not in anger, not in argument, but in honesty. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you're just so desperate, so hopeless, that you're willing to try almost anything, say anything, do anything in order to be rescued from that place, a place where you're afraid, overwhelmed, confused, that you're willing to do whatever it takes to be set free from whatever demonic thing or otherwise is holding you down? Maybe it's a dead-end relationship, a, a loveless marriage. I, I met someone a few years ago. They'd been married 50 years, was talking to the wife. I said to her, what's it like being married for this long? And she had a sad look on her face and said, for 30 years or more, I've not loved him. It just was too inconvenient. Have you ever been in a place like that? Maybe not for 30 years. But for 30 months, 30 days, even 30 minutes can be filled with pain. Maybe you've not been in a relationship with your child or your parents. You haven't spoken with a sibling, a sister, or a brother. And you've tried and you've tried and, and well, or have you tried? As I got into this story, I began to see something that emerged that was very different from my own experience. In my own experience, I often try to run away from those things, pretend like it's not there, and just, just be happy and peppy and full of joy and everything's going to be fine. Let's just keep our spirits up. Let's not really get into a challenging, hard conversation here. In this story before us, the father does anything but that. Instead, instead, he brings his imperfect faith, his imperfect self to the feet of Jesus. His belief is riddled with, with doubt, and yet he approaches this one we know is Lord. He risks theological ridicule and all the rest because he's so desperate for his boy. He comes to God as he is. Let me su submit to you that there is more faith in honest doubt than in all the creeds combined. I believe. Help my unbelief. And by the end of the story, the boy's healing is made possible through the imperfect faith of the Father. Through the imperfect faith. He doesn't wait until he's got it all figured out. He doesn't wait until he's earned the degree or gone to seminary or, or, or finally moved up the ladder economically the way he wants to be or proven himself to society or any of that stuff. He comes with no pretense, with no pretend, with nothing but his shattered and broken faith. He cries out to Jesus. He cries out to heaven. Lord, my boy, if, if. Sometimes 
that's what it takes, isn't it, for new life to take hold of us, to grab a hold of us, to turn us around, to, to get our attention. It's that moment we finally stop trying to pretend we're something we're not. That moment we just give up and just let the real you that's there emerge and finally become known to the world. It's when that happens. It's when we let go. Soren Kierkegaard said, to let go is to lose your foothold temporarily. To not let go, he wrote, is to lose your foothold forever. It's when we let go that we're set free. But still, we cling so tightly, don't we? I, I remember uh, my colleague in ministry, he's in the resurrection now, Peter Gomes. Maybe you recall uh, Professor Gomes preaching here at Country Club Christian Church several years ago. Amazing man, a brilliant preacher, was named one of the top ten preachers in America when he was alive. I remember hearing him tell a story about a day he was working at his church. He was the professor uh, of morals and ethics at Harvard, and he was the preacher in the memorial chapel at Harvard on Sundays. Well, it's a particularly uh, Saturday and he's there at the chapel getting ready for his sermon the next day. And, and the phone rings. Well, there's, there's no assistance or anybody around to pick up the phone. So he goes ahead and answers it, but doesn't say who he is. He just picks it up, says this is the memorial chapel. A voice on the other end, a, a pleasant woman, says, uh, yes, can you tell me who's preaching tomorrow? Well, again, not wanting to let her know who he is, he goes into his, he's got this wonderful New England brogue, this great voice, this very deep voice, kind of sounds like Darth Vader. And he, he says to her, the preacher tomorrow is the Reverend Professor Peter J. Gomes, the memorial chaplain and the professor of morals and ethics here at Harvard University. There's this long pause, and the woman says, is that that short, fat little black guy? <laughs> and Gomes said, when he tells that story, he says, now I'd like to think that I'm not just the sum of my parts, that I'm something more than that. But it illustrates for us, doesn't it? what it means to just let go of all that stuff, to check all that at the door, to just leave our pretense behind. But still we get caught up in what Rob Bell says is the, the, the negative voices of our heads. Pastor Rob says that too often we think like this, I'll never be good enough or fast enough or smart enough or thin enough or good looking enough or hard work enough. I'll never be blank enough. You fill in the blank. It slows us down from being who we are. The father in this story, he's shed every pretense of worry about how he looks or what God or anyone else thinks about him. All he wants, all he wants is for new life for his son. But all too often we miss these opportunities for life because we're not only caught up in our own self-doubt of never being good enough, we too often make the mistake of comparing ourselves to others. Did you know there's an actual diagnosis that's been done related to depression and Facebook? I read this at, on Forbes.com uh, not too long ago. Forbes magazine, you rem remember it. This research shows that people who spend a lot of time on Facebook and a lot of time seeing how great everyone else's life is begin to feel depressed and anxious, nervous, and sad about their own life. I mean, Carla was on, on sabbatical for the last three months, and she was in Italy, and there were pictures of Italy, and there were notes and stories from Spain, and she was traveling around the world and was in Paris. And after a while, I was like, forget about it. I don't care. I'm done paying attention to Carla. It's a great life she's having. That's, that's kind of, that's, I'm in trouble now, by the way. That's what Forbes was talking about. Too often, we allow this comparative nature of ours to drag us down. My buddy Paul Svensson used to always say, comparison is the thief of joy. Instead of celebrating with the other, we look our, at ourselves and say, oh, I'll never, 
I'll never be enough. You know, there's a great story in the Bible that, that illustrates this. You remember the story of Jesus and, and Peter the night before the, the, the crucifixion. Peter boldly and bravely stands up and says, I'll stand by you, Lord. Don't worry. I'm with you to the end. I'm come. I'm here. I'm prepared. I'm ready. And Jesus, you can just feel the sorrow in his voice when he says, Peter, before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. No, Lord, no, 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 not me. Are you, I'm the one, the strong one. With it. No, no, Peter, three times. Jesus is arrested, dragged away. Someone comes along, sees Peter and says to him, oh, were you with the Galilean? Oh, no, don't know him. No, I don't. Another one, minutes later, were you with the people from Galilee, followers of Jesus? No, not me. Finally, just before sunrise, a little servant girl, a little maid, I know you. I recognize your accent. You're with Jesus. No, she sw- he swears at her. He swears at this little girl. No, I was not. And in the distance, a rooster crows. But then after the resurrection, weeks later, Peter is with Jesus at the seashore. And they're making a little bread and they're frying a little fish. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, of course I do. Do you love me? Yes, and three times. Do you love me? Yes, 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 I do, I do. You know I do. Then feed my sheep. It's a beautiful scene of reconciliation, of, of, of mercy, of forgiveness. And yet Peter just can't help himself. He says, all right, I'm glad we're reconciled, Lord, but what about him? And he points at another disciple. And you can just feel Jesus going, how long do I have to hang around till you get the point? Don't, and this is in the text. Don't worry about him. It's not about him. Just be who you are in the presence of your friends, in the presence of the Spirit of God. Well, there's another truth at work here in the text. Often certainty, not doubt, is the adversary of faith. Do you know somebody like that? Do you know somebody who's always right? It doesn't matter what the topic is. It could be baseball, theology, politics. Politics seems to be the worst. They're always right. They're always, always right. Probably shouldn't nod your head in case you're sitting next to the person uh, who that is. Certainty is the enemy of faith. Because when we're always right, when we're absolutely certain, what happens is there's no room left for learning, for expanding, for discovering something new. Consider 15 years ago when our country was attacked. On the Sunday after 9-11, I preached like many preachers did on Psalm 23. I came not with answers, but with a word of comfort. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Some of the pilots, some of the terrorists who took over the planes had trained as pilots just a couple of miles from where my church was located in Atlanta. It was a hard and difficult time, but I came with no answers. Later that week, a couple of television preachers, you might recall this, came out and said, oh, God allowed this to happen because our our society is moving towards acceptance of gays and lesbians. Absolute, complete nonsense, of course, and I couldn't, I couldn't ignore that. And so I preached a sermon the following Sunday saying that this is not the God of the Bible, a God who throws innocent people onto planes and throws them into buildings. No, no, no. And then two couples in the church two days later came to see me, and they said we, we liked knowing that there was a reason. It gave us comfort. You haven't given us answers those TV preachers at least gave us answers, and we, we don't know. We, we don't know for sure. And I said, well, please, and I'm the softest voice I, I could possibly muster. I said, please help me understand. Why would God do this? And they, and they said, oh, all things happen. 
All things happen for a reason. At least we're secure in that. We, we know that. We're certain of that. These were my friends. I'd been in their home. They'd been in mine. To this day, I, I love them and care for them. And yet they went another way. That certainty might feel good in the moment, but it makes no sense in the long run. Instead, consider what happened when we as a country, open, vulnerable, filled with pain, found it in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies even, to embrace one another against the fear and the terror. Do you remember that scene on the night that George Bush got up to preach? Well, to, sp to speak, but it was a sermon, really. Do you remember that? Do you remember that day? He was speaking to the members of Congress and to the United States of America. But before the speech was offered, the conservative Republican President George W. Bush was embraced by the liberal Democrat Tom Daschle. And there in that moment, we saw the United States of America. And it happened when we were vulnerable and hurting and finally recognized what it is that unites us. It's when we fall on our face with no power left and we say to the God of all that is, I believe, help my unbelief, that we're ready to receive something new. Father James Martin was living in New York City at the time of the attacks. Three days after the towers fell, he put on his clerical collar, his priestly collar, and he wandered down to the pile, to the rubble, and he became kind of an, an ad hoc chaplain, as it were. He noticed something, though. The firefighters, some of them were distressed. They brought in hundreds of dogs, rescue dogs, from all around the country. But the dogs were becoming anxious and worried, upset, becoming ill even, because there was no one left to rescue. They were trained to rescue someone, to bring them out of the rubble. And then a group of firefighters came up with an amazing idea. They said, let's go and hide ourselves among the, the, the rubble and the debris and let the dogs find us so they can do their job again, so they can feel good about what they're doing again, so they can get back on task and help us do the work that we have before us. And so they lay lifeless in the pile as the dogs were brought to find these souls isn't that an image of us sometimes? Don't you just want to lay down on the rubble of your life so that someone, the Spirit of God even, might find you, lift you up, and give you hope? The theme for today's celebration and for the sermon and for all the rest is people get ready. Maybe you remember the old 60s song that that comes from. It was written by Curtis Mayfield. He wrote it in the middle of the civil rights fight. There were a lot of folks in the South especially African-American folks who were upset and worried, covered with fear because it just wasn't going, it just wasn't going. And so he wrote this song to say, people, get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. You're broken. You're lifeless. You're not sure if there's ever going to be any hope again. Fine. Get on board because this train's a coming. Get on board. Country Club Christian Church, my friends, brothers and sisters, is your heart broken? Is your body wounded by life? Is your mind broken by anxiety and worry and fear and the rest? If so, bring yourself. Come to this table. Come to this place where the Spirit of God is ready to receive you. As the ancient mystic said, all of our wounds 
our worships. Bring your broken self to the feet of God.